that's really cool. That's really exciting to see them in that place. I got a text from Jim this morning, um, and they're on their way to Nazareth today. Uh, so this is early in Matthew's text, I think, actually, where he's, you know, there, and it's, it's where they open the scriptures, and he says, I tell you, at this very moment, what is, what is being said is being fulfilled in your hearing, which didn't make them too happy. And Nazareth has a bluff, and they, pushed, they were going to push him on the edge of that. But it wasn't his time to go, and so he was in control, and he, he left that place. I think it's phenomenal. I know in two years, there'll be a crew going. I know Ryan's planning on going. I know Julie and I are planning on going. Love for you to join us uh, to be a part of that. Uh, in 2018, I've been talking to a few of you. I talked to Jim. I said, I want to swing a little bit of three days in Rome or Athens along with that. Uh, so that's kind of a plan. Since we're spending the money anyway, right, <clears throat> let's take in as much as we can. So hopefully that'll be something you'll be a part of. Uh, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 12 today. And so as you're turning there, let me, let me share uh, what is a part of the culture at Sunnybrook on our staff. And one of those things is podcasts. And if you don't do podcasts, then you're not going to like coming to staff meeting and hearing people talk about those. And, and so guys have been after me for a long time to, to listen to this thing called Radiolab. Anybody listen to Radiolab? Have any clue what I'm talking about? Okay, four of you. Awesome. I will tell you. Yes, you need to get on Radiolab. It is, for those of us a little bit older, when you went to the doctor's office and you picked up a U.S. News and Report or a Time magazine and read this phenomenal story, I thought, wow, that is really cool. Basically, you go to a podcast and Radiolab puts it on. And they tell you this incredible story or just some interesting facts about something. And one of those is called Trust Engineers. And so and when I walk around the lake or do those kinds of things, I put on the headphones, listen to podcasts and make my journey. And and I was listening to this one a couple weeks ago, and I thought, man, this, this fits with what we're going to talk about today. It was dealing with Facebook, and I know that'll turn a lot of you off, but, but stick with me here. Uh, Facebook, uh, I know most of you are familiar with that. Matter of fact, 1.3 billion, okay, let that set, 1.3 billion people are users on Facebook. And you're going, yes, and I'm not one of them. Okay, sure you're not. But, uh, but 1.3 billion, just to give that number some, uh, <clears throat> some weight to it, that's as many Actually, there are more users of Facebook than there are Catholics in the world, okay? Just to give you the impact of this thing we call the Facebook, right? And so anyway, they tell this story, and it's called Trust Engineers, and, and I'll get to the story. I'm not going to tell you the whole story because there's something in the middle of it that just resonated with what we're wanting to talk about today. Uh, they, you know, they were <clears throat> dealing with this, and the issue was, how does Facebook not, like, blow a circuit? Drew's about ready to go to camp, and I guarantee you something that will happen at camp in the girls' dorm. In the morning, there'll be like 500 hair dryers plugged in, and all of a sudden, there'll be a breaker switch flipped, and it just goes dead. And then they start, we have no power, and then there's a, a cry, and we go. Maybe that's your household. You have a bunch of girls. Maybe it's not even girls, it's you. But I mean, your, your power goes out. I can't imagine how that many billion people, right, on this, and it doesn't crash more than it does. Right? I can't even get internet in Parkview half the time. So I, I just can't imagine how Facebook stays afloat. And they, they tell this story in 2011. It's Christmas. And uh, people are having Christmas and gathering family and doing what uh, Americans and, and people all over the world do is that they take a lot of pictures. And they started uploading these pictures on Facebook over that holiday weekend week. And uh, which was great. There wasn't a breakdown. Nothing happened. But millions and millions of pictures are uploaded to Facebook in that three-day period. Amazing. 
Well, Facebook had taken the break for Christmas, and they weren't in the office, and so they went back on Monday morning. Sure enough, when they got there, they found in their inbox, in this one section of the area, saying, okay, you have a million reports that you need to answer. And in 2011, they they had believed that part of the mission of Facebook is that we represent people, and so we want to hear their claims, and we don't want to respond uh, without a personal answer to the response and the report that they gave. What would they have reports of? Well, typically at, in 2011, they, were, they wanted to protect the family idea of Facebook and so that you were able to report. And at that time, if you had a concern about something you saw on Facebook, you could report that. Things like uh, illegal drug use or pornography or hate speech. And literally, that was basically all the categories they had that you could report. But when they came back, there were millions, and they're like, okay, we need to look at this. And so they started looking, and they realized as they started looking at some of these pictures that, okay, this doesn't seem to fit the category that they chose. Matter of fact, 97% chose a wrong category. And when they found out the reason is there wasn't a category for them, and so they just had to get to the next page to announce that they wanted to click on report and so that we would get the information to get those pictures off. And so they would say, they had pictures like this. These are, these are like puppies. Why are they reporting puppies? Or they're reporting, uh, this looks like a family dressed in the same Christmas sweaters. Why are we reporting this? Or this is a, a selfie. What is the issue? Well, they, they needed to, to put their claim, their report out there, and the only choices were those three, and so the puppies are pornography. And the sweaters, ugly sweaters, or hate speech. And so they started picking this. And so I said, we got to get together. we got to solve this. And so they got really smart people together, right? And these trust engineers came together, and they started to work through this, and they started adding some levels of this. So we, we need to actually uh, put some levels in here. One of the other things that they found out was, this is crazy, that 97% of the reports that the people who complained about the picture were actually in the picture. Okay, now you know where we're going with this. You know, I mean, it's kind of this interesting thing that, okay, you're in the picture, and so basically you're reporting because you don't like the picture, right? Okay, and that was the answer. So they added a step. Here's another little question. Just put it on the survey, and here's the question. How does the picture make you feel? And we'll give you a couple of boxes to fill in. Are you embarrassed? Or or are you sad? Is it upsetting to you? Is it just a bad photo? And then, of course, the obligatory other. And 34% marked other. And so they started to search that, and they started to question those and said, okay, what's the other? The primary other was this. It's embarrassing. And it's fun to listen to podcasts. Well, didn't we give that as an option? Embarrassing? No, there's a difference. Embarrassing and it's embarrassing. And they began to talk about that, and I got what they were talking about. You see, um, I'm fine. I'm not embarrassed by this picture. But the picture, let me separate myself from it, it's embarrassing. This picture that I happen to be in, with my eyes closed at the picture, It's embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. And so they remove themselves from the responsibility of the thing. And so this whole podcast is telling the story of how they go through and they solve and they solve these problems. And then the obvious answer is like, well, why don't like they just 
like Facebook their friend because it was probably their friend who posted the picture and just asked them to take it off. Because literally, Facebook, we can't do anything about this. I mean, it didn't really break any of the rules of Facebook. I mean, it's a bad picture. But that doesn't, I mean, it, I kind of affect their right to take off their picture. And so they, they said, we'll put a box. And in that box, we'll give you an opportunity to Facebook your friends and let them know. And this is the interesting part. So hundreds of thousands of people, they give them the option to fill in the blank. And only 20% do it. I think it speaks, and that's where I, I lost not so much interest in the rest of the podcast. It just kind of resonated as I was thinking through this text. We find ourselves in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37. Before we jump there, I, I just want to connect the dots here. You see, only 20% sent a request. And, and I think we live in a world where it's just easier to avoid a response. Matter of fact, I think we will go out of our way to respond sometimes. Uh, some, and I, I probably use this illustration every single time I preach, and it's probably because I have a problem with it. But it's driving, and somebody cuts you off, or somebody does something, or you're oblivious, you did something to somebody else, and they get up right next to you, and they turn, and then they yell at you, or whatever. Like, they're going to respond, but they're not going to follow through, right? They're just going to, and then, like, disappear. And I found myself in terrible trouble following some of those situations and trying to have a conversation and stand over them and do that at the same time. We love to avoid a response. As I think of the kingdom, and especially as Matthew points this out in his incredible gospel, you see, the present kingdom elicits a response. And Jesus calls for a demand, and he demands a response. And there is no neutral response or choice in the kingdom. And with our response comes kingdom responsibility. Let's unpack this a little bit. Um, before, again, we jump into the text, it's, it's really important at this end of this present kingdom section, 8 through 13, that this has been building. Yeah, this, this, this is Jesus who came upon the scene, who announced himself in Nazareth, and now it has just got, uh, it's escalated, and people are not happy um, I think make a, go back to chapter 11 and there's a section in there where Jesus is saying woe to you and he's listing the cities right you say woe to you if, if you are so unrepentant if, if what was performed uh, in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, they would have repented but you chose not to do that and so he's calling them out and everybody's kind of offended like wait what wow what did we do wrong right and it gets worse last week Drew as we talked about the Sabbath and this well, let's put a box around, let's protect the Sabbath, and there are issues with that. And, and again, it's escalating, it's getting larger. At the end of his text, verse 14, is this incredible picture that we see the, the level of this escalation. Their angst at that last verse, and in 12, 14, it says, they tells us that the Pharisees culminated with this conspiring to kill Jesus and to destroy him. I would call that escalation. Can it get any worse? I think we find a section that has that. It's kind of one of the key verses in this section. I don't know if anytime soon we'll have a bunch of little three and four and five-year-olds walk up and quote uh, out of Matthew 12 about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Part of it is because we don't understand it. We're going to get there. That's going to be fun. Uh, but, but the thing is escalating. It is getting to this point. And now at this impetus of what is happening, we find our text this morning. Before I jump into 22, I know I'm holding that over you, but 
The verses before it is a quote from Isaiah. Now, again, you probably need to understand how the Bible is put together and Matthew, how he's gathering his information. I think it's really interesting that he, because he is preaching to a Jewish a group of people, he is quoting a lot of the Old Testament because he's connecting the Jews to what Jesus is coming to fulfill as the king of the kingdom, the Davidic look. And so in that process lies this text, and it's actually not just a quote from Proverbs 40, or Proverbs, Isaiah 42, but it's actually a lengthy section, and it, it serves as a foundation to the verses in what we're going to read today. It's declaring Jesus as the fulfillment, as the suffering servant who will come to heal and restore. And so in the middle of healing and restoring, we find ourselves in verses 22 and 23, and look at the crowd's response. There's a story. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. We have a demon-oppressed man, and it's kind of different in that he's not just oppressed, but he's actually blind and mute and and I think it's interesting that the word oppressed there uh, is the same as possessed. It's used the same way, and it's just changed here. It's interesting to me. But we find this man, and they bring him to Jesus. Why? Because they've been watching the Jesus tour, right? They're living the Jesus tour. <clears throat> People have gotten tickets to co-play Jesus, and they heard that he's going to play in Oklahoma City, and they're going to show up there as well. Okay, that is what has happened. And so in that process, well, here's, here's man. I bet, I wonder if he could do this one. Like, this is like a, a series of infirmities. And so they bring him forward. I don't, I don't, I'm kind of playing with the text there a little bit. But in that process, they bring him to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He does what Jesus does. Heals him. The guy is like, went from crazy, blind, mute, Satan inside him as a demon, and it is removed. And we see a person that's a human that is totally transformed in their presence. And we get a response from a crowd. Okay? The crowd responds with these words. In the ESV it says this, Can this be the son of David? And, and, and you need to see that. That's Messiah thinking. Right? When they said son of David, they're connecting David to, to Jesus. And so they're seeing their Bible, the Old Testament, come forth and go, could this be? And I think sometimes we see that in ESV and we kind of go like, are they anticipating? Are they excited? Maybe. But I think maybe, even though SV is incredible, I think maybe it should say, in translation like this might help us see it a little bit better. Maybe it said this way, this couldn't be the Messiah, could it? Do you hear that? Like, yeah, this can't be right. Is this, is this right? Is, is that who it is? And so they're trying to connect their Old Testament, their picture of what the kingdom was going to look like, and they're looking at him, and they're like, it can't be him, right? Is it? Is, it, is he the one? And so they're, 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 their mind is wondering. And I think sometimes wondering without, and I think we'll see, wondering without a plan to even respond to the wondering that has happened. Now, before we just throw them off the cliff, so to speak, and just like, oh, I can't believe they would do that. Why would they do that to Jesus? Okay, understand we're on the other side of this revelation, Right? We know Jesus dies for our sin, takes our place. We know that he arises from the dead, defeats it, right? 
We know that there's a promise of the Holy Spirit, and we experience that. So we have all that going for us. <clears throat> they don't necessarily. They're, they're a little confused about their picture of what the Messiah would look like and what they saw. You see, he just didn't look the part in their minds. Even though he was doing these things, he didn't look the part. But because of the crowd's response, the Pharisees have to respond in kind. It is like somebody has put us on the stage and we either agree or disagree. But if we don't say anything, we're in danger of losing this whole population called our Jewish faith and religion and culture. And they're going to follow this falseness of this so-called Messiah, Jesus. And so they had to do something. They just couldn't say, they just couldn't sit there and not say something. And so they did something. Look at their response in verse 24. A dangerous response. But when the Pharisees heard, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. You know, it tells us that Jesus knew what they were saying. So it wasn't like they just refuted him to his face. They're kind of like, yeah, it's just only by Beelzebul he's doing this. So it's kind of that sidebar. I don't know if you've ever got caught like that, doing that in the class. And the teacher goes, now what did you say? What did I hear? Oh, you know, yeah, I've been in one of those situations. Thankfully, by the grace of God, it didn't, didn't puncture my life at that moment. But, but, but that's kind of what's going on. Jesus goes, no, no, what did you just say? And so their response was, by Beelzebub. Now, this is an interesting word. Most of us, when we hear that, we think Satan, and we're right. I think I, I don't have the time to walk through this. Beelzebub, Beelzebub, it's a mixture with that word. And so one of them means Lord of the dung. Negative terminology, right? One that means Lord of the fly. One guy, MacArthur, not MacArthur, McGarvey says this. It also can relate to Lord of the house. And I like that translation because it kind of connects to the verses that follow. Uh, but so they, they take it and they say, oh, it's by Satan that he's casting out Satan. Really? Jesus responds. Look at verse 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, then how will his kingdom stand? I mean, he, he's using common sense in the first of three analogies here. Like, hello, use your brain. The first thing is like, okay, you're saying that Satan did this, and Satan is going to like destroy himself? That doesn't make, that doesn't sound like a good plan. And so he refutes him with this first simple logic. Satan's not going to remove a demon. So let, let's, let's go with the next one, verse 27. Second analogy. And if I cast out a demon by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? And when he means sons, like your brothers, like other Jewish people. I, this was news to me. I don't know if I'd ever thought through this, but people were demons possessed before Jesus was there, right? And so what did they do? Did they have a hospital to send them to, right? And so, in some essence, we find in this text that Jews dealt with exorcism. And I think that's interesting. Josephus tells a story, and I don't know all the details, but basically it involves a, a tree root, a ring, and a basin of water. And basically, if the basin of water gets tipped over and is empty, then we know the Holy Spirit, or the, the evil spirit left. Okay, it sounds like something I'd hear today, right? Huh which is interesting, and I don't even think Jesus is taking a shot at his Jewish brothers who are, who are practicing this. But what he is saying is like, <clears throat> okay, you're okay with that? Like water tipped over? Like 
Here's a guy that's foaming at the mouth, and now he stands before you like nothing is wrong. Transformation, right? It's, it's, it's like, what kind of evidence do you need? Like, you're, you're okay with them doing it that way, but you're not here? And so he's saying, but who do you say that they uh, exercise demons by? Well, by the power of God, through his spirit. And he connects himself to the spirit. I think verse 28 um, listen to this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, is actually an appeal to their heart, and especially to the crowd. You see, he's got two groups of people here. He's had a crowd respond, he's had Pharisees respond, and their responses are different. This, this couldn't be Jesus, could it? That's Satan. Two very different responses. And I think in this moment, he is appealing to the heart of the crowd. Don't you see the evidence that supports my claim that the kingdom is here? Immediately, you know, it was, it was unprecedented what you have just now seen. And you've been watching for days and now months. Some of you have been city to city following me. And you're the crowd. And I've still got you here going, hmm, I'm just not sure. Don't know. Okay, what do you need? What do you need from me? I, I think it's really interesting. Luke, which is a parallel to this section, Luke 11. Uh, this, this story is found in, in all synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke 11, he uses the word, instead of spirit of God, he uses the word finger of God. And I think that's really interesting because the finger of God is only used one other time. It's in Exodus 8. And this is the picture of the ten plagues, right? Moses, right? amazing picture and the 10 plagues are going down and, and I don't know if you remember it I thought it was interesting the magicians in the first couple of plagues what could they do they could they could actually do those plagues which I always thought like wow they had the power to do some of those plagues they got to the plague of the gnats and they couldn't do it and they came to Pharaoh and said okay we're done um, it's only by the finger of God that this happens and so it's really interesting because put yourself in a Jewish context and you're a Jew, you hear a finger of God, you know exactly Exodus 8, okay? And so this is what's happening here. Immediately they would catch the correlation with Moses. The magicians in watching these plagues before them tried to match each one came to a point where they couldn't match the almighty God. And then we know what Pharaoh did, right? He continued to harden his heart. Finally, one third analogy there in verses 29 and 30. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Very revelation kind of talk there. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. One final analogy, again, one of these, hello, and I, I'm assuming or I'm presuming that most of you have not robbed anybody lately. But I've, I've seen enough movies that when they rob somebody, they either do something drastically to the owner of the house, or there's nobody there, or if somebody shows up, they either flee, or they do something with that person. They knock them out, right? Or, as he says here, Jesus is like, okay, it makes no sense. If, 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 if I'm going in to take over a strong man's house, and he's talking about the body, and the strong man here is Satan, wouldn't you first tie him up and bind him? That's the Revelation Connect there. Uh, we're not going to talk about that today. But in, but in the essence of that, 
You know, shouldn't you tie him up? Again, another analogy like, this is, don't you see why I'm here? I am tying up Satan so that you can have a clear opportunity. Jim said it in, in, the, in the deal. I thought this was kind of a cool connect. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. That's a Matthew thing, right? You're going to hear it a lot in, in uh, Matthew 13. And, and I think about this. You know, it's almost like even though this is an analogy, here we give an example, it also ties to I'm tying up everything that could keep you from believing in me. And what is your response going to be? You're going to call me Satan? Seriously? And so this is where we find ourselves. You know, if, if verse 28 was an appeal to the crowd in their heart, then verse 30 is a warning. It's a big-time warning. There is a call for a decision. In verse 31, you know, this is a great passage, and you can think, um, you can think a lot of different things here, but um, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And I think what stands out in that, it, you know, if you're going to either gather or scatter, you don't, you don't get to play the middle. There's no neutral here. You see, because actually, I'll, I'll take that back. Neutral is a choice. You see, neutral is a response. So in effect, it kind of falls in on itself. There really is no neutral. You either choose him or you scatter. I mean, it's a picture of maybe a shepherd and his flock. And it's this idea behind this. But the warning is there. There's no neutrality. Jesus has made clear claims which demand the impossibility to remain neutral or indifferent. I think we could throw in the word or stay in unbelief. Because unbelief will take you somewhere. Either you're with me or you're not and you're scattered. Verse 31 Again, the verse we won't have little kids recite anytime soon. Therefore, I tell you, everyone, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks about the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven against the Holy Spirit, either in this age or the age to come. You see, the rebuke is for the Pharisees and their wording, and they're just almost at some level flippant, but actually total belief that it's Satan. We're going to get to that. You know, it's one thing to speak ill of Jesus is another to deny or blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? I mean, have you struggled with this one? Or are you just kind of like, eh, I've heard, but I'm not sure. Uh, it's been really fun to study this. I, I don't know if this is the answer, but hopefully this will help you a little bit. Let me tell you, first of all, what it's not. I think that might be helpful. Number one, it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm putting all that together. It's not merely unbelief. Well, I am choosing not to believe. It's, it's not merely that. It's, it's important for us to know that this is the only place specifically in talking about this unpardonable sin, right, that we find in all three of the Gospels um, that it's mentioned. And so that's important for us to know. It's not a common teaching that we see Jesus <coughs> proclaim. <coughs> it seems to be in the moment he points it out amongst the Pharisees and says, you guys have just committed this unpardonable sin. It is not even, now this is where it gets a little itchy for us a little bit, and so bear with me. Uh, it, it is not denying Christ or blasphemy per se, blasphemy, not with the Holy Spirit. Okay, and let me help you understand that a little bit. Paul says, and this is a great verse that was helpful for me. First Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says these words. 
Okay, now remember Paul, right? This is Paul, who was a part of the Pharisees, right? Who was going out and killing Christians, right? Who had an incredible transformation. This is what he writes to Timothy in verse 13, chapter 1. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I think it helps us a little bit. He was a blasphemer of Jesus, right? He, 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 didn't, he was doing everything he could because of his unbelief and his ignorance. And I think that helps us. Uh, another thing that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not. It's not just flippantly um, saying something against the Holy Spirit. And I think that's where a lot of uh, believers today struggle. I don't know if I've had a lot of people ask me that, but every single commentary, about eight of them said this, and to me it didn't give me enough um, meat, but I'll tell you and then you can decide. He said, you know, anybody that is struggling with if they've committed this sin, in their struggling has proven that they haven't committed the sin. Okay? And, and let, me, let me help you with that, because if the Holy Spirit, as a follower of Christ, is in you, you cannot deny or blaspheme the Holy Spirit because he's in you, okay? I know that's a little heavy, but let that resonate a little bit. Let's work on our definition. Here's some of the ways that people have said it. It seems to be more of a, like a callous attitude that has been built over time. or It's this ashamedness or a, a willful, I think this is helpful, willful unbelief. It's moving past unbelief to slander. I think that's, that's a key way to look at this. Um, it's this failure to understand Jesus is forgivable, but outright rejection of the saving power of God through the Spirit, not so much. And then it's deliberately denying God in the fundamental way, one which goes against plain and obvious evidence. It's what we find the Pharisees doing in this moment. Yeah, okay, he healed somebody. Okay, yeah, big deal. Still Satan. Really? Really? There's a story told on TED Talks, and uh, I don't listen to a lot of those, but this was really engaging. It caught me because I, I, I kind of saw this, actually Googling, and it, it mentioned the town of Libby, Montana. So I know I have some Sandpoint, Idaho people in here, and that's really close to Libby. Actually, a good friend of mine from college, we played basketball together. He was from this little town. This lady named Gay, or Gail uh, Benefield was from the town of Libby, and she has a story. And he, in, in the TED Talks, this lady is telling her story. Gail Benefield was a meter reader, a lady meter reader. And I don't know if some of you probably don't have any idea what that is because they do that electronically now and they read it from the car going by. But I remember, just like you'd have a postman walk your neighborhood, <laughs> the meter reader once a month would walk your neighborhood and all of a sudden you look out the window and he's, he's reading your meter, right? Not sure what he's doing, but he's taking a lot of notes. He's got his glasses looking down and he's doing all those things. And we knew his name. That's what she did in this little community of Libby, Montana, up in northwest Montana. As she began to do that, she started to go and visit houses, and it was a small town, so you knew the people, kind of like how I grew up, and she started to realize that there were a lot of middle-aged men, like in their 50s, who were on oxygen, and so we're at home. So, okay, that's weird. It seems like there's a lot. Oh, well, that's just maybe what it is, right? Not thinking, thinking about it. And then suddenly, well, after a series of sickness, her father passed away at 59, and she just wrote it off as like, man, he's had a hard life. I mean, he has worked in a mine. 
his whole life, and that's rough work, and it's physical, and you got long hours. He's just probably worn out from all of that. But then a year later, his, her, her mom passes away unexpectedly. And, and as she started to just get her mind around this, like, something is wrong here. Like, what, what is going on? So she started to do some thinking about it, and she started doing some research about it. And, and, and she realized, well, first of all, Libby has this mind. And in the mine, they produced what's called vermiculite. And this vermiculite was used all over town as a resource for their community. It was a soil conditioner, and so it helped grow grass, and so they put it in the soil. It was insulation in their houses, and it was on their playgrounds, and it was on their football field for their high school team. It was even somehow in the ice skating rink in this winter town. What she found out was that vermiculite, vermiculite, Mind locally contained, contained traces of asbestos. And when she figured it out, she, she thought that everyone would want to know about this. But they didn't want to know. In fact, many of them were upset with Gala. She continued to speak out against the problem. And in 2002, this is, blows my mind, a federal agency determined that Libby had a mortality rate of 80 times higher than anywhere else in the United States. As the evidence mounted, many refused to acknowledge the issue. An observer said this, you know what, this isn't ignorance, this is, and here's the definition, willful blindness. I know it doesn't encapsulate what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but there is a sense of a, a willful blindness to what is so clear in front of us. Willful blindness is also called willful ignorance. It's actually a legal term that lawyers would use. It's the evidence that is readily available, but you have chosen not to know. Have you ever done that? I don't know how to tie a tie. And I tell you why I don't know how to tie a tie. Because I willfully want to be blind in how to tie a tie. Tom Mall, years ago, we were coming back from a funeral and we had his old car and there were six of us sitting in, in this car. So three in the front, three in the back. I'm in the middle front. Yeah, that's awesome. I-44, coming back from Joplin, right? And so he teaches me how to tie a tie and I thought, oh, this is actually not hard. And I go, okay, wait, I don't want to know, no, 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 no. And, and I've taught myself not how to tie a tie still. <clears throat> we joke about that, but it's choosing to not to know what you can know. Willful blindness has disastrous consequences in this text because of their willful blindness in their lives. They reject the evidence that is before them and they will not be forgiven. And then this reveals what their heart truly is. It's evil. As we close, I just I have some thoughts because this is a text that um, speaks to the church, but it also speaks more probably to an unbeliever. Maybe we need to preach this at a revival, pull out the 70s and get that going again. Get a tent going. I don't know if that's the answer, but this is a, this is a sermon to the unbeliever. And, and I don't mean to make fun of that. Because we are called to go to the world, by the way. So here's a warning for the unbeliever. And maybe our prayer life needs to think as we think of these warnings to the unbeliever. Number one, indifference and apathy are not neutral choices. Some of the nicest people that live, that I, 
maybe I don't work with, but I know my wife works with, they're going to hell, right? We know that. Like, maybe your mom or dad, your, your spouse, right? You see, indifference, neutrality is not neutral. It is a choice. It is a choice to stay in my unbelief. And, and again, now hear this. That's why we're called to share the message, right? Because God is going to do a work through his Holy Spirit and his word. And we go, because we're called to be a light into the world, that that influence does happen because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And people will go from unbelief to what? Belief. But the reality is, unbelief is a choice. See, unbelief means there's no faith, right? And if there is no faith, there is no forgiveness. Second thing, warning. Jesus is going to come to judge the world. This is true. We don't have to look very far in our scriptures to find that. Careful to disregard him. I know that's not the greatest news, but I I pray as a believer, if you're a believer here today, that you would hear these words and you would have more compassion than you've had. Because there is a choice being made by a number of really good people. And you're going to go to their funerals and they're going to say all these great things about them. But the reality is, hell awaits them. Damnation. Because a judgment is happening. Jesus has reached an escalation in this time of his teaching. They want to kill him. He knows it. Why does he speak the truth? Because he has a compassion. Are we going to go to a crowd that wants to hear the heart of the message? And you know what? You're going to run into some Pharisees who are going to go, I don't care what you say. But I'm still going to preach the message for the sake of the kingdom, for what God has called to me. And that gives me some final thoughts about us as believers, as followers. Number one, take comfort in what God has done. Let me say this again. The Holy Spirit in us keeps us from doing this, right? I, I want to I stem the tide of your fear of, I hope I didn't do the unpardonable thing here. Learn, educate yourself, understand that because the Holy Spirit is in you, the conviction happens and God is doing a work. And again, I don't have all the answers on that one. We can talk about people in different situations, but I'm trusting if God has done a work in them that God is still just going, hoarding after them, just hounding, because I know he's done that to me, and I appreciate what God has done. Take comfort in what God has done. He has himself taking your place so that we can be and stand at the right hand of the Father. Number two, and let me just read this text, this last part. We're not going to have time to go through it, but uh, just kind of this last added action here, verses 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. He's still preaching to the Pharisees here, you brood of vipers. That's, that's, that's what it sounds like. It's harsh. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasures brings forth good, and of the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on that day of judgment, um, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I think that's where it catches us. Like, oh, I said, I said a bad word sometime. I was at a game, and I don't know if God will forgive me. Okay, silly thinking. He's talking specifically to what they just said amongst themselves. Now, 
did you just say what I thought you said? Because you need to know the judgment that you just put on yourself because of what you said. There's a reality in that judgment. But we live in a confidence. But this is where we live out our faith. Our speech and our conduct reveal our character. I love, 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 love the picture of a tree bearing fruit. I get that, right? I don't, have a, I don't have a big mind to get some heavy thoughts, but I can get a tree that grows and a tree that is not producing. This last little windstorm, it blew down limbs uh, out of our yard. But it was obvious to me that those limbs were already dead. Why? Because there was nothing green on them. They'd been stuck up in our big old trees until the right wind went the right direction and they tumbled to the ground. And he says to us, what is your conduct? What is your speech revealing about our character? Finally, we'll close with this. Because we, we so desperately need, and thank God that God provides us, we need a radically changed heart. Right? Amen? It is only by what God is doing with our heart that we change. And it's only by the Holy Spirit's power that God is doing a work in us. And sometimes we don't know what the fruit looks like, <coughs> but God is working in us. May we live and respond well. I'll close. Jim talked about those who have ears to hear, let them hear. May our ears and our eyes be open to the gospel and to the spirit in which he speaks in and through us. May because of that, that would move us to a world living in unbelief. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, First of all, I'm jealous. I, I would love to be in Jerusalem and heading to Nazareth today and hanging out with a bunch of really cool people and, and just taking in with my eyes and seeing Scripture just transformed because of being in the place where it was said. Father, I'm jealous of that, but I also know that, God, we don't have to be there to see the, the, the relevancy of your word today. God, your word is sharp and active, and it convicts. Father, may we have hearts to be convicted. Father, may we live out of the overflow of what you've done in our lives. Father, may neutrality be seen for what it is, for the point of someone to change from unbelief to belief in you. Father, I, there's a reason why your angels rejoice in those moments. Father, may we find our joy in what you find joy in. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen.